Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by my co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes. And hey, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We have some really awesome shows coming up. Smart guests, don't want people to miss it. Speaking of amazing guests, 24 years ago, I was a newly minted graduate of a liberal arts college holding a shiny economics degree, and I went to work with some other bright, shiny economics types at a consulting firm. That firm was great at economics, terrible at names, by the way. It was called Economists Incorporated, which is sort of the snakes on a plane approach to naming things. You tell people very literally and exactly what they're about to get. After those of us who worked there moved on, one of the very brightest of the people I worked with ended up taking a strangely parallel path to mine for a few years. I went on to work in Maine politics for two different members of Congress on Capitol Hill. She worked as the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Maine. But after that, our paths diverged just a little bit. After a bit more time on Capitol Hill and in campaigns, I went back to consulting, writing, and podcasting, while she became a state senator and last fall was elected as the Secretary of State of the state of Maine, the very first woman to hold that position. Shanna Bellows has been kind enough to revisit her humble origins by joining me and Paul today to talk about democracy and voting rights. And it is an honor to welcome still one of the brightest people I know, Secretary of State Shanna Bellows. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I am thrilled to be here. Although I can't believe it was 24 years ago that we first worked together. You look the same. People can't see where we record on Zoom. This is one of the silver linings of the pandemic. We don't go into a radio studio anymore. We actually are able to record on Zoom. I, you know, usually when people say this to each other, they're sort of blowing smoke. I am not making this up. I wish I had photo evidence. Shanna Bellows, the Secretary of State of the state of Maine, has a picture that is slowly wilting in her attic or, or she has a ring that she got off of a creature in a cave. I don't know how you do it, but you look exactly the same. Okay, all right, serious question for you here. Last year and over the last year, we've had the role of secretaries of state in our country put into the spotlight like never before. I don't think it's going too far to say that some secretaries of state like Republican Brad Raffensperger of Georgia we're part of a very thin line of courage and integrity that saved the Republic, that saved American democracy. Many people still don't know exactly what secretaries of state do. And I know it varies a little bit from state to state, but just tell all of our listeners, what do secretaries of state do generally? And what do you focus on now that you're almost a year into your job? What a great question. And it does vary across the country because of states' rights and the way we're set up. But most secretaries of state are the chief election officials in their state. So they oversee the state and federal elections and certify the results. And that was what was so crucial in 2020 was the good work of local and state election officials, nonpartisan work to ensure that every vote was counted fairly and accurately and securely and that the election results were certified. And there's so many checks and balances that people are not fully aware of in that process. And I think when you look at 2020 and how close we came to overthrowing the will of the people and overturning the results of a free and fair and secure democratic election, 
uh, it really was the secretaries of state like Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, Jocelyn Benson in Michigan, who were there holding the line and protecting our democracy. And then all of the countless nameless local and county election officials all across the country who worked so hard to ensure that everyone could cast their vote and have their vote counted accurately. Well, you know, Shanna, that that last part of your answer actually um, uh, presages some of what I'm about to ask, because I, I, I was thinking about you taking on a new job. You were essentially newly elected to this position, uh, a landmark election for you, the first woman elected in the great state of Maine to the job. We were living through the fallout of the 2020 elections with numerous efforts around the country to call the results into question, undermine faith in our elections, an effort, by the way, that is continuing without cessation, an effort that is ongoing as we are speaking in the most dangerous kinds of ways. So it's not as if the, you know, the gloves are back on and everybody is having tea together. This is still a uh, pugilistic uh, 10 round, 10 round bout. And we're probably only in round two. Uh, we are at the beginning of a dangerous time. But thinking back, there was clearly tremendous pressure on secretaries of state and election administrators, including the actual folks doing the counting, many of whom are volunteers. And what we are now seeing is we're seeing the pressure on those folks who are doing the counting, they're quitting because it's a it's a thankless job. And many people are subject to uh, threats and dangers from overzealous partisan activists. So what, what went through your mind? What were you thinking as you took this new job in this unprecedented time of threats to our democracy and to the folks that you have to oversee to make sure that our elections are free and fair. What were you thinking? Well, one of the primary reasons I ran is that there's nothing more fundamental to our democracy than the right to vote. Everything else we care about, whether it's climate change or healthcare or economic justice or racial justice, all of those issues depend on free and fair and full participation by the people. And so that's why I ran. I was sworn into office on January 4th, and you mentioned the threats against election officials. On January 6th, of course, my phone and everyone else's starts blowing up because you have the attempted coup. And it was an attempted coup, the assault on the Capitol. And as Secretary of State in Maine, I oversee 14 members of law enforcement, sworn uh, members of law enforcement, whose primary responsibilities fall into identity theft, overseeing stolen vehicles or fraud of, of any sort. And, you know, I was talking to my chief detective and he said, you know, ask me about the security in my own home and was I protected? So I go home and have this surreal conversation with my husband as a former head of the ACLU, I've always been opposed to surveillance cameras and 
in public places that might infringe upon First Amendment protected freedom sure. of speech and association. Sure. Right. And suddenly we're talking about home security systems. And then in talking to secretaries of state across the country, recognizing that death threats against local and state election officials became part of the job in 2020. That uh, some of my friends and colleagues across the country, like Katie Hobbs in Arizona, the Secretary of State there, or Jocelyn Benson in Michigan, were experiencing not one-off or, or a couple of uh, death threats here and there, but multiple verifiable threats of violence against themselves and their families. And then to have conversations with local election officials here in Maine and to recognize that local election officials, even here in Maine and probably New Hampshire, were also experiencing threats uh, and attacks and rhetoric that they had not previously experienced. So here in Maine in 2021, we're moving forward to support legislation to, uh, quite frankly, um, place, make it a crime to uh, threaten violence or attempt to disrupt the conduct of local and state elections here in our state uh, because you, you shouldn't have to risk your safety or your life to be an election administrator. This has always been something that has been ministerial, nonpartisan, fairly routine, some might say boring, the nuts and bolts of administering an election have traditionally not been an area of partisan rancor or again, violence or attacks, but that all changed in 2020. Well, I've got to, so at some point, we're going to put you in the way, way back machine. We're going to have you back and we're going to talk about surveillance and cameras and how our identity is traded online. We're going to, we're going to take you out of your secretary of state mantle, but that's from, that's from a previous role. I, I, I want to, I do want to stay on the theme that Paul just introduced because as he said, all of this stuff is ongoing. J we just saw the end of the so-called audit of the vote in Arizona. And in every conceivable way, it could not have gone worse for the people behind it. The entire effort was widely laughed at since it was done by amateurs, a group called Cyber Ninjas, believe it or not. They, they actually named themselves that with a straight face. And they had no idea what they were doing. They were pursuing wild theories about being able to find bamboo content and ballots to somehow show that they were from Asia because everything from Asia has to have some bamboo in it, apparently. And when the final results came in, they managed to prove that actually Biden won by even more than the official count said he did. And yet, and yet, and yet, in the immediate aftermath of those findings, former President Trump touted them as somehow bolstering his case that the election was illegitimate. Polling shows that two thirds of Republican voters continue to believe that the 2020 election was illegitimate. And now we see activists in other states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, et cetera, launching what, again, what they call audit. It's not an audit. It's not an audit, but these kinds of efforts to somehow go back over the results of the 2020 elections. What on earth can we do? What on earth can you do as 
as the top election official for a state in our union to try to put this mental genie back into the bottle? How do we restore people's faith in elections when there are so many who are today actively trying to undermine it? And let me just add. Uh, oh, that wasn't a long enough question. No, no, no. I just want to. <laughs> I want. I want to. I want to add some a number to the question because you you guys are are economists. You like numbers. I read just the other day that twenty six percent of Americans, according to some poll, believe that uh, Joe Biden is illegitimate and that this election uh, needs to be overturned. And a surprising number of people, not just Republicans, a surprising number of people in our country believe that force may be necessary or is necessary to secure a legitimate election. We're in crazy time, people. And, uh, and so your question, what can we do, is both trenchant and on point. <laughs> And I laugh, right? We, we all might laugh at the absurdity of Cyber Ninja examining Arizona ballots for bamboo fibers, which is absurd. The problem is this is also exceedingly dangerous for what you just said, Paul, that unfortunately in the misinformation and disinformation age, some people don't see the absurdity, they think it is real. And remember, the chain of custody for those ballots and for those machines was completely broken. At one point, they were taking things to Montana to one of the guys from Cyber Ninja's, you know, vacation home. Truly absurd, but also, again, dangerous because the security of our elections is dependent on a chain of custody of ballots and machines, making sure there is no external tampering whatsoever, and also guaranteeing the secrecy of the ballot. Your vote is your own. It is yours to decide whether you want to disclose or not. And that's because in authoritarian regimes, those in control control your vote. But in democracy, we the people are the decision makers. And so, I think this is really terrifying. So what can we do? Well, first and foremost, sunlight's the best disinfectant, right? And we have to get information out there about how things work. This is really important for secretaries of state, for state and local election officials, but also for well-informed, well-educated people to, to start having a conversation about how things really work. So I served on a national task force with Republican and Democratic secretaries of state from around the country to look at vote verification and what are the best practices for verifying the vote and specifically for post-election audits. Because here's a secret, it's not really a secret, it's just boring. States have been doing post-election audits, real audits, legitimate audits, not cyber ninja fraudits for a long time. And Arizona, in fact, um, had in place and does have in place objective real post-election audit procedures. Georgia did a hand recount. You can look state by state at their post-election audit or review procedures or recount procedures and see that there are numerous ways that states verify the integrity of the vote. Can some of those procedures be amended or improved over time? Absolutely. Here in Maine, for example, 
unfortunately, we are one of the states that doesn't have in place a really solid post-election audit law. That's something that I'm working on as secretary and, and look forward to implementing. But we do random recounts. We're a purple state. We have recounts at the state level in various races that are random almost every cycle. And we did in 2020. And those recounts time and time again have demonstrated the accuracy of the results. So I think one of the challenges is people think, oh, audits are a good idea. Well, of course they're a good idea. That's why states have been doing them for years. So Matt Robeson, let me ask you, how are we on time? Do I, am I- You can sneak in a question. It's just got to be of elegant efficiency. Oh, that's a- that I can never do that, but I'll but I'll try. So um, one of the biggest stories of, of, of the past election cycle was the use of voting by mail uh, because of the pandemic. Many states expanded the use of voting uh, by mail, and and uh, although uh, the former president had always voted by mail, um, he predicted that the sky would fall if we had mail-in voting, that it would lead to nothing by fraud, and of course. It's existed uh, in this country since 1900. Maine has no excuse absentee voting. In New Hampshire, there was a fight over it. There was absentee voting, uh, no excuse allowed because of the pandemic, but not generally. So we've got a ways to go in New Hampshire. Uh, In Maine, voters can request an absentee ballot anytime prior to the Thursday before the election. So tell us in general, what do you think? about voting by mail? Is it safe? Is it secure? Would you like to expand it? Would you like to maintain it? Are there other remote voting methods that you see as practical and secure to expand uh, and to either expand accessibility to voting or to ensure that the integrity of our vote is maintained? Our job is to make voting accessible, convenient, and secure. In Maine in 2020, we were third in the country in voter participation and more than 62% of our voters who turned out voted by mail. So yes, absolutely. It is a safe, secure and accessible way to vote and we should do more to promote it. We need to meet voters where they're at because fundamentally it's about the people's choice. It's about the people's constitutional right to vote. Right before the break, I teased the question of ranked choice voting. Maine is not only the only state to use that method in federal elections, but also featured the very first congressional race to actually have the outcome affected by the use of ranked choice voting. So, Shanna, do you like ranked choice voting? I love I, I'm ranked. really I'm putting you on the spot here with this. Do you <laughs> like ranked choice voting? And does Maine really do it better than places like New York City, which had its little meltdown a couple of months ago? How could ranked choice voting be improved? So Maine's motto is, dear ago, we lead. I love ranked choice voting. I was on the committee for ranked choice voting, working to get ranked choice voting passed. We passed it by referendum so that people voted uh, to support ranked choice voting. And then there was a second referendum as well, upholding uh, that vote a second time. So I have a question for you before I proceed. What's your favorite kind of ice cream? Um... I'm going to go with mint chip. But if you couldn't have mint chip, would you take chocolate or would you prefer vanilla? I would, I would probably go with, I would probably go with chocolate. Although look, the real answer, the real answer is, you know, marriage is about compromise. My wife is allergic to chocolate. 
So what I would probably do is I would probably get vanilla because I would, there's a, there's a snitch matrix. You'd always be, you'd be, look, you'd always be sharing with your wife because you guys are both fitness freaks and you don't want to eat all that ice cream by yourself. Oh, I no, I how- want to eat all the ice cream. Let's just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm derailing us. I'm derailing us. Mint chip so is number one. Chocolate's number time. two. So mint chip is number one, chocolate number two, vanilla number three. So. Yes, yes. And so that's what ranked choice voting is, right? It's ranking your candidates in order of preference instead of choosing a single one. And what it allows is for voters to vote their conscience and their principles rather than strategically. So if you really love, uh, say and mean, hypothetically, the independent candidate, but you think either the Democrat or the Republican is going to win, you can vote for the independent number one and the Democratic or Republican candidates number two, you voted your heart. If the independent comes in third in the initial results, if no one gets 50% plus one, so a majority, then it goes through a process of rank choice tabulation. And what happens is the third choice winner, or if there are multiple candidates, the lowest ranking candidate, they're eliminated and their ballots are reviewed for their second choice to be allocated among the remaining candidates. All right. So vanilla has lost the election. Vanilla lost. In the ice cream sweepstakes, vanilla is out. And so now you have to go, Secretary of State, you have to go to all the vanilla ballots and say, all right, well, who, who, those vanilla voters, who was their second choice between mint chip and chocolate? Exactly. And at that point, either mint chip or chocolate is going to win. If chocolate wins, it sounds like your wife is out of luck, or actually, if she's allergic to chocolate, she's in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't have to snitch my ice cream, you know. So why did Maine do it better than New York City? Because... One of the rules in ranked choice voting is you don't tabulate the ballots until you have them all because you don't know who the last place candidate is going to be until you've assembled all of the ballots. So that was a huge problem. Another huge problem in New York City that honestly could have happened to anyone, but unfortunately happened to them, they ran test ballots. And with the electronic tabulating machines, you always do a test ballot to make sure that your machine is working properly. Uh, And they ran the test ballots. They ran a large number of test ballots. That's actually not a problem. It it really, the larger the number of test ballots, the the heightened accuracy in some ways. Um, But then they forgot to eliminate the test ballots. And so their initial uh, tabulation, which was only a partial tabulation, which is really bizarre in my mind, Uh, included test ballots as well. So it was completely inaccurate and that created a bunch of controversy. In Maine, we make sure that we are not including test ballots in the official ballot tabulation. And we wait to have all of our ballots assembled in a central location before doing that tabulation. It's not as complicated as it seems with electronic tabulators, you can do it with the click of a button. Uh, We try to do it very transparently so that people can see Uh, And actually with my race for secretary of state, it was ranked choice, Um, actually not an electronic tabulator since it mean the legislature elects the secretary, Uh, but it went through a series of rounds and I survived to the final round. And that's 
what it does is it empowers the voter and it ensures that whoever wins has majority support. So how long has Maine had ranked choice voting and how did it come about that it's for federal races, except for yours, uh, and not for the state level races? So ranked choice voting first was on the ballot in 2016, which I remember well because it was my first race for state Senate. And I will say my state Senate district voted for Donald Trump for president, Shanna Bellows for state Senate, and for ranked choice voting. So this really wasn't a right left issue. It was an issue that transcended political parties and one statewide. However, Maine's constitution uh, needs to be changed before it can apply to state level races like the gubernatorial race or the state senator, state representative general election races. Because those races are spelled out in our state constitution and because, interestingly enough, our constitution was changed to allow a plurality winner, it needs to be changed back to be explicit about the majority or to explicitly permit ranked choice voting. And so for that reason, we use ranked choice voting for federal races like congressional races or the presidential race, and we use it for primaries, but not for our statewide general election races. Now, this was a big deal when a um, House representative, uh, Jared Golden, who was the assistant majority leader, the, the House of Representatives whip here in Maine, challenged incumbent Congressman Bruce Poliquin in the second congressional district, which is as purple a district as they come. And Maine is a purple state, I like to say. We, we vote the person, not the party, much like New Hampshire, very independent state, Voting, voting the person, not the party, the principal, not the party. And so when Jared ran, there were other candidates as well on the ballot. So none of them received 50%, not Bruce Falquin, not Jared Golden. It turned out that the second choices of the independent on the ballot were people that were more aligned with Jared Golden than Bruce Poliquin. So when ranked choice voting took place, even though Bruce Poliquin had won more votes in the first round, Jared Golden won a majority of the votes after ranked choice voting. That's because um, although going back to the ice cream reference, say mint chocolate chip wasn't the favored choice of, um, <laughs> or 50 per, uh, 51%, uh, but yet in the subsequent tabulation, once you eliminated vanilla, mint chocolate chip was more popular than chocolate. Look, so. personally, I, I, I mean, and this is just like 30 seconds of soapboxing, but I actually, I've been kind of agnostic as sort of a theoretical matter about, I, I don't get passionate about ranked choice voting the way some people do, particularly people who are Democrats. I will say though, that my view has, has evolved a little bit because per, as, as per what you were saying, Part of the, the benefit of ranked choice voting is it makes people feel that they had a hand in approving of the person who was ultimately elected to represent them. They, it, it reflects their choice to some real degree. And the, the Poliquin Golden election is a perfect example. The margin that put Golden over the top 
represents people. It wasn't the first choice, but it was still their choice. And given how much polarization we have in this country, that's maybe not a bad thing to have more people feeling some sense of, you know what, this is in some way who I voted for. All right, soapbox over. Paul, over to you. So um, we've seen um, maybe 350 bills introduced in legislatures across the country over the past year that in one way or another uh, are seeking to restrict access to voting. There is a concerted effort. It's part of the overall plan, it seems, of a certain segment of our political parties to uh, try to restrict access to voting. And we won't get into the reasons why and call anybody names. But it's a real problem. Um, Congress has tried, failed to pass a bill uh, to protect voting rights. It's now we're now looking for some kind of compromise that can get support from both parties. So I have two questions for you. Uh, is there anything you think Congress absolutely must pass to help protect voting rights? And on uh, the most controversial issue, perhaps, would you be open to compromise that included some voter ID requirement which Maine currently does not have. So I absolutely think that Congress must pass compromise legislation to protect the freedom to vote for precisely the reason that you said, that all across the country now, 18 states, at least 18 states, have passed restrictions on voting rights because some politicians would prefer to pick their voters than have their voters pick their politicians. That's what it's about. They wanna suppress the vote. They wanna keep particularly black indigenous and people of color um, from voting. You look at the restrictions in Texas seemingly targeting Latino um, and black voters and that's crystal clear. And with regards to voter ID, traditionally requiring a certain type of ID to be shown at the polls while casting your ballot has been used to disproportionately keep black indigenous and people of color from voting. Because you and I going to the polls to vote on election day, are we really going to be questioned if our ID is out of date or perhaps not the proper ID? Probably not. But a young black man or uh, indigenous person or Latino voter, um, the data shows, the statistics show are in fact more likely to be kept from voting, more likely to be questioned, more likely to be blocked from the polls, also potentially more likely to have challenges accessing official credentialing. And as Secretary of State, I also head Maine's Bureau of Motor Vehicles. I head ID and credentialing. And it is true. We estimated for the legislature last session that there are potentially over 200,000 Mainers who do not have access to a state ID or state driver license. And when you look at the criteria for that, the requirement, for example, to get an official copy of your birth certificate, requirements that might be easy for you or me, but might be difficult for people in transition, experiencing homelessness, or from traditionally marginalized communities. So what do I support? I support the compromise version that is in the Senate that was uh, 
drafted with substantial input from Senator Joe Manchin, a former Secretary of State of West Virginia, hardly a liberal state. And what it does is put in place standards for voter ID. Now, keep in mind, you know, people like to say, oh, Maine doesn't have a voter ID. We do require proof of identity for voter registration. And that's where it's really important because you want to make sure that those people who are registering to vote in your state are residents of the state, are United States citizens, and are who they say they are. So that's where a voter ID is so important. In terms of showing a particular form of ID at the polls on election day, well, in Maine, like every other state across the country, what you have is your incoming voter list. It's the list of voters who are registered in the jurisdiction at the polls, and that gets checked uh, when you come in. You state in Maine, you state your name, your residence clearly, so that the election workers can hear it, and that gets checked off. It creates a voter participation history, and that gets checked after every election. And what we have found, election after election, we've had same-day voter registration, for example, since 1973, is almost zero fraud. Uh, and the type of fraud that happens tends to be individuals. You know, we had one person in this last election in 2020 uh, take a roommate's ballot and vote a roommate's ballot as well as their own or try to, attempted to vote two ballots because they were in a furious, bitter disagreement uh, with their roommate about their presidential choices. That's a crime. We caught it and we prosecuted it. So this idea that people are going, you know, someone is going to go to the polls and say that they're Shanna Bellows and get my ballot and vote it, it just doesn't happen. Um, so no, do I think that Congress should try to impose a voter ID law on Maine like there is in Texas? where you can use your concealed weapons permit, but you can't use a student ID? Absolutely not. Maine is third in the country in voter participation, um, just after Colorado and Minnesota. Quite frankly, Texas and the rest of the country should be learning from us. Well, and I just wanna point out to our listeners that Secretary of State Bellows isn't just whistling Dixie here, no pun intended, in referencing laws in places like Texas and North Carolina, federal courts, are the ones who say that the intent here in the design of the of their voter ID laws is explicitly partisan and racist. In in North Carolina, for example, the uh, the list that you were just referring to of types of IDs allowed includes driver's license. Doesn't include, for example, if you have an identification associated with being in federal housing. It, it it's a federally issued identification, but disproportionately something that is held by people of color. And so, of course, the law doesn't allow it. That is discriminatory. And that's the kind of thing the federal courts have said, no, you can't do that. There is a there's a clear discriminatory intent here. Okay, I'm going to take us totally off track. You are actually one of the few people in America who can speak to a question here. What is it like to be an elector? in the electoral college. <laughs> no, and I, I'm, I'm kind of being a little tongue in cheek about this, but I'm, I'm sort of not. I mean, this is such an unusual facet of our democracy that we elect people. People don't realize this. We actually elect electors. That's what you vote for when you vote for president. You vote for humans. You vote for electors. And there are people who 
meet, I guess, pre-pandemic, they met and they, they actually cast those electoral votes for who becomes our president. So you are actually one of the few Americans who has been an elector. What was it like? And, and let me add to that question, not only what was it like, but what do you think about the electoral system? Because it's causing an awful lot of controversy. Um, a lot of people don't understand it. They think it's a relic of some ancient bygone uh, discriminatory purposed era. Um, so let me just add the, the difficult question on top of the softball that Robeson lobbed at you. Sure. And, and let's think for a moment. I mean, that's, this is the fundamental philosophical question when it comes down to voting rights, right? Do you trust the people, all of the people, all of the citizens of the United States, we the people in order to form a more perfect union to participate in our democracy? Or do you think voting rights should be reserved for the few, for the privileged, for the white landowners or white male landowners? And so the Electoral College really is a relic of white supremacy of a day, the original constitution, which I carry in my purse, was a constitution that was designed to protect the voting rights of white male property owners. But that has changed over time because of social justice movements, because of people coming together to say, no, the promises in the Bill of Rights, the promise in the constitution, these powerful documents is for all of the people, no matter who you are or where you come from. I ran for electoral college because I was deeply concerned about the ability to improperly influence or sway the decision of a few people in this country who are truly actually casting a vote for president. I was worried about faithless electors. And so I ran for the electoral college uh, because I believe in democracy and I wanted to protect our democracy in that way. And I was also curious um, and wanting to experience that. And so I did serve on the Electoral College. Matt, it was surreal <laughs> uh, to realize, and it was very solemn. Uh, it felt very significant for me. Was it in person this year? It was in person. It was held in the chamber of the House of Representatives in the Maine State Legislature. And my grandmother, uh, who has since passed, um, it was 100 years old. And when she was born, um, women did not yet have the right to vote. So for me to cast that vote as a member of the Electoral College and then to be elected secretary, that just, it was very profound for me. But I oppose the Electoral College. I support the national popular vote compact to move us to a system where every vote in the country counts, where it is we the people that is electing the president, not the electoral college. Because quite frankly, the electoral college is a system of privilege. Who knows and who gets to run for the electoral college? It, that is a privilege that I had by, by virtue of being known, by virtue of being involved in public life. So. Let's get rid of it. So 
this is going to be a lightning a lightning round question because we just have a very few minutes left and our timekeeper Matt Robeson is going to keep us on on track but viciously of, and rudely yes so one of the important roles of the secretary of state is educating the public you run several programs um, the number of people in our country who know how our how our system works is 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 surprisingly and devastatingly low, including what they know about voting and voting rights. Do you think a strong civics education program can actually turn the tide? And is there something we can do short, more short term to help strengthen the fundamentals of our democracy? Yes, I believe in civics education. We have an eighth grade citizenship award at the secretary's office. We do classes on the constitution. When I was a kid, I had a copy of the Bill of Rights on my bedroom wall. Now I have a copy of Maine's Constitution on my wall at the secretary's office. And I walk You in are Leslie Nope. You realize that, right? <laughs> I love the Constitution. But I think teaching those founding documents and the history of change over time is extraordinarily important for an informed citizenry. That's what we need to do. That's well, what we need to do to protect democracy. I, clearly, the way to educate the citizenry is to have a teenage uh, pop bands uh, reading the Constitution so that teenagers of both genders and all genders can put teenage pop bands reading the Constitution is that on thing? their walls. Absolutely. That's a thing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, you know, you, you could uh, have Korean, you could have Korean pop bands singing the Constitution. And that would be a thing that would really get teenagers interested in civics. And I just think we it's time to think outside the box about our civics education. So I'd be happy to work on a musical approach to the constitution with the secretary of state of any state that wants to figure out how to really get into, get worms into the kids' heads to understand what our political system is all about. Well, that is foresight and innovation from former Congressman Paul Hodes. I'm Matt Robeson, and I just want to thank Secretary of State of the State of Maine, Shenna Bellows, really for a delightful conversation and for everything you're doing to try to protect democracy. I know you're not a member of a K-pop band, but, um, you know, I, I still think you're pretty inspirational. It is great <laughs> that you are the first woman Secretary of State of the State of Maine. You're doing a fantastic job, and uh, it's just it, it's been a delight having you on. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.